Dear Jesus, thank you so much for this time together today to come and to worship you. Lord, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts this morning, that we would receive from you, that as we hear your word, we wouldn't get tripped up with the things that don't make sense to our human minds. I pray today that we would open our eyes and that we would open our hearts and that we would receive of your glorious presence, of your power, of your transforming spirit. For those who don't know you, God, I pray that you would draw them, even at this moment, to know you as Lord and Savior. For those who are struggling, God, I pray peace and power and sustaining grace upon them. Lord, for those who are just searching today, Lord, I pray that you would gently nudge them, draw them, bring them into your presence that they might experience your fullness and your grace. And may we leave here faithful to your call, regardless of our circumstance. In the name of Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. The family faith test. That's what we're doing today. We're looking at the story of Genesis chapter 22, one of the most controversial stories in all of the Bible. I'm carrying a baton here, uh, one, because it's the Olympics, and uh, I always wanted to be in the Olympics, but uh, I'd like to tell you a story about how I almost qualified, but I, it, it wasn't even close. It never even happened. It would all be a lie, uh, but I always had a dream of being in the Olympics, and uh, just a few moments, I'm going to pass the baton uh, to Randy uh, Riggins, our associate pastor. He's going to give a little application. We've never done that before, but we're just going to do a little team thing today. I remember when I was in my former life, when I was a high school football coach and track coach, and I remember one of the meets that I was coaching at that we had uh, we had participated in, and we were doing the mile relay. And, of course, there's a baton that's given at the end of each quarter mile. And uh, our second guy was running, and he was next to a rival high school, a high school that was very near our high school, and they got tripped up and they fell. And our guy actually kind of got hurt. Uh, he actually really hurt himself. And so we had kind of pulled him off. And the other guy was getting up. And he was kind of checking on him. And, and I told him, I said, man, you just need to go. And he left. And he continued to run. And uh, he, at this point, he was in second place. But he didn't have a baton. He didn't have a... He didn't have a he didn't have the baton. And, and so he's running. And he finishes. And he thinks, you know, he's... He's going to be putting his team in good shape when he gets there to the end, you know, to, to the third guy that he's going to pass the baton to. He doesn't have a baton. Well, it was funny. The guy just slapped him on the, on the, on the hand. They kept going. It doesn't count. You know, the poor guys, they didn't realize. They, they ran the whole mile, finished second in appearance, but because they didn't have the baton, it didn't matter. So here's my question today. When we look at this, it's obviously purely symbolic. But what's an essence vital to our Christian life is our faith. And what are we doing with the faith that we have? Maybe you're one of those people who have accepted Christ and then you kind of just did like that, gentlemen. You, you kind of set it aside. You didn't mean to, but you kind of set it down on the ground and you just kept running. The problem is, is when we get to the end of the line, if we don't have a faith, 
If we don't have a practical faith, if we don't have an active faith, we have nothing to give our children. We have nothing to give our neighbor. We have nothing to give anyone. If we are absent of faith. Now, we're going to see a story here that really gives a beautiful description of faith. It, it's a little morbid. And in our culture today, that's real prevalent, isn't it? We're hearing morbid stories all the time. You know, just two weeks ago, we were driving through Aurora, Colorado, and little did we know, by the time we got home, the shooting would have occurred. Multiple people would have died. And it was interesting, I was listening to the chief of police of Aurora City, uh, the police department, and they were asking him about possible motive. He said, you know, we know he had been dating a girl and that relationship was broken off by her. So that's about as much as we have to go on. Isn't it amazing that sometimes people come to that place when the relationship is broken, they fall into destruction? I saw it last night. I read an article about a guy. He and his wife had had problems. They were separated and they were handing off the four-year-old. They got in this big fight and he shoots and kills her and kills her sister and kills another family member and takes off with a four-year-old. Now that four-year-old will have... No parents to speak of, because that man's in jail. What a morbid world we live in. We look at stories like this and we think, at least we're not that bad, but aren't we really? Because, I mean, you know the storyline. It's Abraham's going to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. We think, wow, that's way out of bounds. I can't buy that. And I hope you don't buy that. And God forbids it expressively, okay? But he's using this as an illustration here, and it's a great storyline for us. We think, oh, we couldn't handle that kind of story today because we're so well-educated. We're so sophisticated, but yet every year millions of babies are aborted in the name of what? Having a better life, having a better chance. That's exactly why the pagan generations or the pagan nations were sacrificing back children back then. That maybe they'd have a better life. Maybe the gods would hear. Maybe they would have a little bit easier life if they did that. The truth of it is, is we're not that more sophisticated today. So as we look at this story, I think one of the key questions we have to answer is, what is the difference between temptation and testing? Now, I would encourage you to read the book of James chapter 1. It gives a good explanation in the New Testament to helping us understand the difference between testing and temptation. But let me just give you the bottom line. Testing, God always uses testing for our good, for our maturation, for our growth in Him. Temptation is always used for our destruction. It's what Satan tempts in order that he might kill, steal, and destroy. But God tests that he might mature us, that he might grow us, that we might become like him. And that's what's occurring here. We'll also see what we call Christological indicators. Christological indicators basically are these. We see a foreshadowing, as we've talked about before, of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. We see a picture of what is to come in the future. A picture of Christ. And we see that very vividly in this text here. Let's read it together. In Genesis chapter 22, beginning with the first verse. 
Sometime later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Now, if I were to ask you, what is the most beloved scripture verse uh, amongst most evangelicals today? What would you say? You'd probably say John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only beloved son, the son in whom he loved. Do you see the foreshadowing right here? Abraham, the beginning, the father of the nation, the beginning of the covenant blessing. He said, Abraham, I want you to take your son, the son in whom you love, Isaac, whose name means laughter. Matter of fact, if we look even deeper into the etymology of that word, it means the divine smile. The divine smile, the, the purpose, the laughter, the joy of Abraham's life, whom you love. And I want you to go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain of which I will tell you. Now, we know from the book of Second Chronicles that this area actually is that of where Jerusalem will be, of maybe even the Temple Mount, and of which Derek Kidner, the great Old Testament scholar, says it's very realistically possible that this is the area of Calvary. He continues here. He says, early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. Early the next morning. He took with him two servants, and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance, a hill far away. And he said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I go with the boy over there. Now, Isaac, we don't know exactly what his age is, but it's somewhere probably between about 12 and 15. So he's not a little boy. But we see that he is a faithful son. He says, I want you to, we're going to go over there and we will worship and then we will come back to you. Notice that Abraham says, then we'll come back. Now Abraham's going, and it's not uncommon in his culture, remember. This is just the beginning of the faith of Judaism, so to speak. This is the very beginning. And in this culture, it's not uncommon to practice child sacrifice. And yet he is going to the mountain, yet God has made a covenant promise with him that through Isaac, the nations will be blessed, that his descendants will exceed the stars in the sky. And so, in fact, he believes this covenant promise. He has consecrated Isaac in this promise. And he believes this. We know this from uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 through 20. He believes that even if Isaac dies, God will bring him back from the dead. God will resurrect him. And this is before any resurrection has ever occurred, by the way. Do you see the Christological implications here? Do you see the foreshadowing of the Christ? And Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, and he placed it on his son Isaac. The very wood that he was to die upon, the wood was placed where? Upon the back of Isaac as he walked up 
the hill of Moriah, of which Derek Kidner says is probably in the vicinity of Calvary to worship. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, he said, yes, son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Where is the lamb? You know, Isaac is probably pretty suspicious of what's going on at this point. Hey, Dad, you got the wood on my back. We're going up here. We've got no sacrifice. And yet, he's faithful to his father. You know why? Because his father has been faithful to the Heavenly Father. It's been witnessed. It's been demonstrated all his life. And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. And he bound his son. Remember how they bound Jesus when he went before Pilate? They bound him. The Bible says they bound Abraham bound Isaac and then he laid him on the altar on top of what? The wood. And then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. And he went over and he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. We see right here the first example of what we call substitutionary atonement. Now, that's just a big theological term, and all that means is this, is that someone pays the price. Someone covers the price of your sin. Someone covered for you, and that's what happens. God provides a ram, and ultimately, he will provide the ultimate lamb that covers the sin of all mankind. He covers it here for Isaac. And the Bible tells us that... uh After he did this, Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, on the mountain, the Lord, it will be provided. Now, that's where we get the term, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. Now, Jehovah actually is a hybrid term. It's not a real actual word found in the actual text. It's a word that we've used. It's a good word, term that we use. And actually, provides is a secondary term here in the Hebrew. Here's what it literally means. God will see to it. God will see to it. It also means to provide. Whatever it means, whatever it takes, God will see to it. No matter what has happened, no matter what has occurred, no matter if you are in the shadows of death, no matter what loss you have had, God will see to it. You know why we have people who are doing these morbid things today? Because they don't believe that God will see to it. They don't see any other way. They think that this is it. That this is all there is. And the despair and the gloom, I just want to get away from it, and that's all there is. But we serve a God. When we place our faith in Him, 
When we place our faith in the person of Jesus Christ who promises, I will see to it. I will provide whatever is necessary, just like he provided here for Abraham. Because the promises that he makes, he always keeps. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you will have obeyed me. That same God is still asking us, as Soren Kierkegaard said, to place our Isaac upon the altar today. You say, what does that look like? Well, you know, we have a family that was right here, part of our church, the Finleys, Greg and Tori Finley, and they had a two-year-old son, Will. And they felt the call to go to Rwanda. Very, Greg's a very well-educated guy. He was an engineer, went to seminary, went to Oxford. Very well guy. And now he's teaching in the backwoods of Rwanda. He's helping pastors. He's helping families there. As a matter of fact, their picture is up uh, in the back. And that's what it looks like. They had a two-year-old. Does that make sense? To go to a third-world country, Rwanda? You know that's where all the genocide occurred? What's your Isaac? Monica Miller, a single girl here in our church, who feels the call to go to Tanzania, Africa, as a single woman, another woman who's a nurse, who's been to seminary, has her master's degree, says, I'll go. And and I wish you could all go there, because if you ever want to know what it looked like 2,000 years ago, this is what it looks like. There are mud houses, there's no sewage, there's no running water, and I'll give my life for the purpose of Christ. I'll put my Isaac upon the altar. There's a family right here, matter of fact, even in this room today, who recently had the opportunity to take a job in in another city, in another area, which would have been much more lucrative. But as they prayed and as they thought about their, their children, they felt like, you know what, God has placed us here and God is doing something right here in this church. And God has connected us to one of the third world countries we're partnering with. And we feel like God wants us to continue to do that work here and so we're going to pass on that. What has God asked you to place upon the altar today? Randy? All right, I got a baton, I got a ladder, we're good to go. So, characteristics of a healthy faith. We see these characteristics in Abraham's response in this story. We're going to look at a couple of them. Because these characteristics are going to help us pass the baton off to the next generation. In a way that propels them, that sets them up to continue this walk of faith until he returns. I think as we were uh, looking through the story, uh, a couple of things were really, uh, ah, wow, just kind of 
messed with my mind just about Abraham's response. And I want you to do something with me. It's going to be kind of an object lesson for all of us to participate in for a minute. Everybody just stand up for just a second. Everybody just stand up. Fantastic. Great. And then I want you to put your right hand up in the air like this. Like this. Very good. And I want you to put it on top of your head like this. And I want to put your hand right here like this. And just go like this. Okay, now have a seat. Now, that was immediate obedience. And that was from a goofy guy up here that event, you may even know my name, right? And it's like, I just got you to do this. <laughs> That's great. Um, we, now, the point, the point is what? The point is we're all capable of it. Right? We are all capable of immediate obedience, and that's what we have in this story. Look at this again. Abraham's faith was this example of immediate obedience. He did not just throw up a bunch of excuses. Like, um, you know, I think I heard you, God. I'm not real sure. I mean, my iPhone 1 is giving me some problems here. You know, I, he did not throw out all kinds of negotiation with God, right? Okay, God, you know, that's fine. I hear what you're asking me to do, but you know what? Have you thought about Sarah? I mean, after all, she laughed at you. Come on, let's... What about her? She's old. (laughs) God, could you possibly just define sacrifice for me? Right? I just need some definition here. No, no, no. Actually, what does the story say? Beautiful words here. It says, He rose bright and early. In the morning. Boom. Immediate obedience. You know, from time to time, as a youth pastor, I would have kids come up to me and ask me this question, or they would just make this statement. You know what? I think Christianity is boring. Now, they just had no filter. Adults think that a lot of the time, too. We just don't say it because we're more sophisticated, right? And one of the responses that I would kind of, off my head, just give them from time to time is, okay, well, when was the last time that you trusted God for something that was bigger than what you could accomplish on your own? Right? Uh, when was the last thing that God called you to be obedient in and you haven't done that yet? Because I can tell you, it's in those moments that boring leaves the Christian life. The person that we place our faith in becomes him and not us. But the reality is we often don't trust God for the supernatural, for the miraculous. God wants to involve us in something that only he can pull off. You know, with Abraham, only God could have pulled that off, you see. We don't immediately obey, and then the moment is lost. And catch this, this is where it's really, really interesting, because God, although he loves us greatly, right, still, his plan is going to be fulfilled. And you know, oftentimes, we choose to punt, even though we've listened And you know what God says? Okay, I'll use somebody else then. Then they get to watch me show up and show off. And we miss it. And we settle for mediocrity, for business as usual. Sometimes we immediately obey. But the blessing that we're looking for doesn't show up immediately. And we begin to lose heart. And that may be where some of you are today. Maybe what has happened for you is you were in the middle of believing things. And yet there's specific time frames you were looking for or specific answers that you were looking for. And the how and the when are not what you had in mind. You see, a sign of a healthy faith is that we aren't swayed by the unknowns of how and when God will provide Abraham didn't steer a different course. He just obeyed. So parents, grandparents, mentors of the next generation, as we think about passing this baton of faith on, how does this generation see our immediate 
obedience? Or do they see it? Kurt Williams, if you were here last week, boy, what a treat. What an amazing challenge he gave us. If you weren't, I challenge you to get the download. But after he finished the services, there were parents that were leaving. And I'm standing there at the door multiple times. People saying, we just got to go home and talk. We're going to have to talk. And sometimes it was about mom and dad talking. And sometimes it was like, we got to talk. And it was like all the kids. And, you know, I'm looking at the kids and they're like going, we hate you now. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm sorry, you know. And some of you may have been involved in some of those conversations. But you know what? Here's what's crazy, right? And this can happen to any of us at any point in time. We hear something. We see something in God's Word. We listen to something here. And maybe we even involve our children in that conversation. And yet, business as usual. Things continue on. And what has that generation picked up from us? Have they picked up a faith of immediate obedience to God? When they do, we pass along this faith to them that is healthy, that is ready for whatever they encounter, regardless of the challenge. Genesis 22, 4 and 5, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. All right, so here's where the ladder comes into play. I'm... uh, Last weekend, prior to the first and second grade retreat, which was amazing, by the way, and, and that's really crazy for me to say when you're surrounded by a bunch of first and second graders, but it really was cool. And so, uh, before that time, I am painting the foyer of my house, and I'm on a ladder roughly twice this height, right, in my foyer, on this particular step, imagine twice this height, right, and I've got an extension pole, because now, Mark Merritt, who is over our facilities here, Right? Uh, he, he's kind of like a MacGyver, and he's taught me to be kind of MacGyverish as well. So I've got this long extension pole thing with a brush that's duct taped to the end of it. Okay, whatever. And so I'm like dipping it in paint, and then I'm trying to get the border, right, uh, of the fo- so that it doesn't get, and you know, I'm doing this, and, the, and, and at times I'm thinking, should have, should have hired somebody, should have, you know, why didn't I hire somebody? Oh, yeah, I'm cheap. You know, and I'm just kind of walking through this whole thing in my mind. And true story, about every five minutes, this was Friday morning a week ago, all of a sudden, boom, the ladder would jolt. Because I have five kids in my house. And they would knock that ladder. And sometimes, I'm just going to be honest with you, my response was not good. It wasn't. And my response was not good because I was not confident up there. I was not confident as Levi was running by to get something. And sometimes in our lives, as parents, as mentors, as adults, as just followers of Jesus, we are not very confident in our steps. And as a result, our reactions in the home are awful. Look at this confidence. We will worship and return to you. He knew he was going up that mountain to kill his son, but he also knew that he would be bringing that same son back down the mountain alive. And crazy enough, in the passage, he even views this as a worship experience. What? Hebrews chapter 11 describes the experience this way. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about was about to, um, let's see, uh, to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offering will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned, here we go, 
Hebrews chapter 11, listen to this. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. See, Abraham had a had a confidence, had a confidence that they were going to come back off of that mountain. And the question is, what is the confidence level in our faith? What does the confidence factor look like in our faith and our obedience? Has your confidence been shaken recently? Did God fail to give you an answer that you were counting on? Has he remained silent on a particular issue? Confidence in him is a confidence that actually doesn't give up. It perseveres even when the sky looks ominous and questionable. How does that really look like? What does that look like for us? Maybe it's the prayers of a parent, of a grandparent, of a mentor that just don't give up for their children, regardless of what you see right now. Maybe it's the mom or dad who diligently stays connected to this body of believers, to your small group, even in the face of a spouse who's chosen to be spiritually absent. Maybe it's the family that makes the financial decision to give to the Lord, even in tough times. Even if it means that some of the extras are not what their family gets to experience. Maybe it's the mom and dad who keep faithing it even after they've made a difficult yet biblical decision regarding their kids. And their kids are creating all kind of havoc in the home as a result of the decision that you've made. But you keep faithing it with confidence. And here's what's crazy. These first two ingredients of a healthy faith that we see in Abraham's life, they're actually capable in and of ourselves. We can take a step immediately. We can be confident. But it's short-lived. It can be so very short-lived, especially if the faith is in ourselves. Because we don't have an answer for our sin problem. Our own understanding, even in the most basic of human emotions and thoughts and experiences, is so very limited. That's why in Proverbs fourteen twelve it says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And unfortunately, we often parent that way. We parent based on us, not on him. We parent based on maybe how we were parented, and maybe it wasn't anchored in him. We parent based on how we feel, which may or may not have been anchored in him. What if we successfully pass the baton, but the reality is we're running in the wrong direction? I thought it was interesting, whenever Kurt was here, he echoed some of the same things that Barry St. Clair mentioned whenever he was here a year ago. He mentioned the latter. I don't know if you remember this or not, but he mentioned our parenting. And he said, sometimes what happens is, this is how we choose to parent, right? We lean the wall up against, the ladder up against the wall of the American dream. We lean the ladder up against the wall of materialism. We lean the ladder up against the wall of performance, of extrinsically what we provide, what we do. And so we lean this ladder here and our decisions with our children are based on that. And the problem is we've got it leaned up against the wrong wall. He says, what if we take the ladder and everything that we do with our children is based more against this ladder being leaned up against the wall of how can I make, how can I provide, how can I prepare my children to love Jesus more? At the end of the day, mom, dad, 
grandparent, mentor, neighbor, into this next generation? What if how I live involves me thinking about all the decisions that I make as I pass this baton on? To how can I get my kids to love him more? What if that's the ladder that I'm really leaning against? Will it look different? I was in a conversation right before right before Lindley was born with a pastor friend of mine. And he asked me this question. He said, uh, he said, Randy, regarding how much college costs these days, explain to me how you could do five kids. I don't understand that. Why would you choose to have five children? My response is pretty simple. God chose us to have five kids. To some one, to some two, to some none. To us, he chose five. And you know, with some of our kids, it may be that they are entering a Division I school at some point in their life. For others, it may mean that they are on the mission field the day after they graduate from high school. I don't know what God has planned for them, but you know what? I'm just going to be trusting Him, and I'm going to keep hopefully in my fallible, messed up state as dad, where I get it wrong a lot, just like Abraham did. I'm going to hopefully keep pushing them to be and look and love Jesus. And what that looks like in their future, I'm not real sure. There's a confidence that Abraham had in this moment, but it was anchored in the character of God. His faith was in God because he knew God, because he walked with God. I mean, can you imagine what kind of conversation? Uh, and, and by the way, we know that because look at his response here. It says, Abraham answered, God himself will provide. Who is he looking for to the answer of this crazy situation with them walking up the hill thinking he's going to stick a knife in his son's heart? <laughs> God's going God's to give an answer to this. You know, being anchored in him as parents, I, I don't know exactly what that means for for you, but I was thinking about how we respond as mentors and in the conversations we have with our kids. Can you imagine what kind of conversation they had as they were walking back down the mountain? I mean, seriously, right? I mean, the knife is right there and all of a sudden the sacrifice and you think maybe although they were both obedient, they were both sweating just a little bit. And they're walking back down the mountain. And in my mind, I just see an amazing mentoring moment, father and son. And the question that I have for myself and for us is, is that not what our life with our kids is supposed to be about 24-7? Is that what Deuteronomy 6 really looks like? You know, there are materials that you can buy online that are great to help with fostering that relationship with your children. Because ultimately... It's not about the church being handed the baton of your kids to do the work for us, right? No, 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 absolutely not. It's us owning that responsibility and saying, you know what? Yes, and the church is going to provide me some resources. Our children's ministry, our preschool ministry, about to launch into some brand new curriculum this fall called True. And there are resources that they're going to be giving parents, spiritual mentors, right, every week and every month, either weekly through handing out things or monthly online with links that they're going to be sending to you. And these are opportunities that you could just jump in on with your kids. 
So whether or not you use free stuff that we give or you purchase stuff online through like Word of Life or other opportunities, the reality is there's just a mound of resources available for us to be fully equipped to walk the road with our kids, right? To walk up and down the mountain with them, fully engaged, immediately obeying the Father, confident in what He's called us to do. And that confidence persevering. Why? Not because it's based in ourselves. No, because with Abraham we find it was anchored in his relationship with God. Did he get it right 100% of the time? No. Abraham batted about (laughs) 50-50. He lied about Sarah being his wife. Right? He struggled with the whole childless situation. Yet he's known as father of the faith. He's known as father of the faith. Christianity, Judaism, Islam, they all revere him. Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Galatians calls him the man of faith. Did he struggle? Yes. Do we struggle? Yes. At times, have we given our kids a skewed perspective of what faith in him is to look like? Have we dropped the baton at times? Absolutely. But God calls us in this moment, don't Look back, look forward, and be ready to hold on and pass the baton in a way that honors the 2,000 years before of baton carrying, holding, passing the faith in Jesus Christ. As we close, a couple of self-tests, right? One is our response quotient. That's what I call it. Our RQ. What is that? Psalm 95, 6 says, Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. We are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Has your response to Him this week been one of immediate obedience? Whatever He calls you to do, did you do it? Did your kids see it? Second, what about our attitude? 2 Corinthians 4, 8, and 9 says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. What's our attitude? What was the attitude of Paul there? Of despair? Of anguish? Of anger? No. Of hope and perseverance. Of confidence. Were you on the verge this morning when you walked in of just giving up? Good news. We have a God that we can trust who through the imagery of this story reminds us our hope is anchored in Him, in His Son. Hebrews 6 describes Jesus as the anchor of our hope of which we can place our confidence. Will you bow your head with me for a moment? How's the faith that you're passing on? What does it look like this week? The faith you're passing on to your neighbors, the faith you're passing on to your kids, to your grandkids. What does that faith look like this past week? What, what, what are they absorbing? Because, you know what? They are absorbing something. As we close in this worship moment, and allow us to just hear from God, His Spirit directing us. We've also had a final time this morning of worship and offering. 
As the music is played, and invite our guests to place those tear-offs in the in the bag as it as it comes across. That's all that we ask you to give. Others of us, maybe there's a moment in time here where you would just respond to Him. I don't know what that looks like, but just tell God what you need to tell Him. We started off the service this morning wide open, saying, "God." <laughs> I'm ready to listen. Okay, we've listened. Now, God, it's the next step you've called me to take. God, we're listening. Thank you for meeting us this morning in this challenging, amazing story of faith.